This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Gloucester rugby player pathway coach Andrew Brownhill. He discusses his work with Scotland Rugby and the player identification process they go through, how to create a performance culture and why social interactions are so important, as well as his unique take on skill acquisition. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Um, so Andy, thanks very much for, for jumping on. Um, are you enjoying the heat wave that we've currently got going on in the UK? Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, yeah, it's uh, I don't deal with the sun very well, so it's been yeah, it's been a it's been a fascinating couple of days trying to work and deal with thirty plus degrees heat. But yeah, I can't argue because we're in we're in horrendous weather for the majority of time. So <laughs> you're similar to me. I've got the factor fifty at the ready now. As soon as I have to. <laughs> outside um, but I say I'm not, I'm not going to moan too much so um, obviously it came across a lot of your work and, and whatnot on social media and, and for some of the stuff that you retweet and some of the stuff that you put out is really good the people that maybe haven't come across you or your work before do you just want to give a bit of a brief summary in terms of I guess your career trajectory and what's that looking like uh, moving forward over the next few months uh, yes, yeah, so I, I coach rugby. Um, that's sort of predominantly my sport, and I've done that since I was about twenty or so years old. So coming up to around ten years now, and I sort of played a little bit before that, um, but not to sort of any great sort of heights of professional rugby. But um, quickly found myself in coaching, and yeah, I mean I've worked in uh, three or four different private schools in like assistant head coach roles and head of rugby roles, and. Um, along with stuff with academies. So I've worked with Worcester Warriors Academy with their sort of 13 to 16-year-olds. And then at the moment, I'm doing the same role with um, with Gloucester Rugby Club in their academy. And then I also work for the age grade for Scottish Rugby as well. So I do a lot of their talent uh, identification for uh, their Scottish qualified players and then also coach on their sort of 16s age grade programme um, throughout the season. And I've done that for about four, four or so years now. Um, and then sort of my next role is I'm heading to heading to Australia in the next few weeks to take over as a director of pathway pathway role if I can get my words out for a uh, for a club down there which I'm which I'm excited about. So but yeah, that's sort of the that's sort of it to start with. <laughs> yeah, no, so I guess if we start at that last point, so what made you decide to take that jump out to Australia? And I imagine um, in terms of culturally and uh, culturally and uh, learning for you must be a really exciting time to go and see how they do it differently to what we do uh, in the northern hemisphere etc yeah well i i'd always the past couple of years had thought about coaching in a different country and i'd actually i'd actually interviewed at a few positions out in france um and it, and in europe and it's all i've always wanted to coach abroad and because i've i've been big into sort of reading up on other coaches from different sports and especially football coaches um and then reading up on rugby coaches and speaking to various people, it's always seemed to me that the people who have developed the most and sort of kick on the most and by the time they get to sort of 50 and 60 years old and they they have coached in different countries and they've learned from different cultures and different experiences, whether that be in the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere. 
So when sort of I just got contacted out the blue really for the position in Australia and then sort of went back and forth with talks and all that kind of stuff and then sort of agreed on the position that I do. Um, and yeah, I'm just really excited to coach in a different country and experience a new, like a new culture. And I've never been to Australia before in my life. So it's, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting, but at the same time, I'm just looking to, I'm, I'm excited to experience something that's not, um, that's not the Northern hemisphere. Cause that's all I've coached in. I've coached in plenty of different environments here, but I think it's, it'll be good for me to spend a few years coaching down in Australia or maybe looking to travel in other places where it's going to sort of stretch me a little bit and make me feel uncomfortable because that's probably where I've most developed as a coach is when I felt really uncomfortable and and sort of made a few wrong decisions and failed a little bit here and there but yeah that's what sort of kick-started the move really. Yeah I think well from everyone I know that's gone to Australia they've never just wanted to come back so uh, <laughs> I think it'll be a, a real good experience for you. In terms yeah. of the, the style of play etc this that's there or, or the skills etc that are taught is there any massive difference between what would traditionally be taught here in, in our setups compared to what would be t taught um in australia well i think with a lot of southern hemisphere teams usually they're sort of like base skill set on sort of catch and pass in their evasion skills with ball in hand is very if they're, they're probably a lot more far advanced than northern hemisphere teams and we probably catch up in the Northern Hemisphere too, than when we get to sort of senior sort of men's elite level. And that's sort of, that there's loads of things to factor in there. The weather conditions of sort of, I know they play in their winter and they have rain, but usually sort of all year round, the, the weather's pretty good for them in Australia and places like New Zealand. But also I think like rugby is a massive sport and they play sort of a lot of multi-sport out there. So I know a lot of kids that are on scholarships at their private schools out there will be on like multi-sport scholarships. So they won't just play rugby, they'll do track and they'll do cricket and they'll play Aussie rules. And I think for Australia, that's probably the main one is so many people play sort of Aussie rules football and they play rugby league and rugby union. So they're doing it from a young age and they're playing cricket. And I think all of those sorts of hand-eye coordination from such a young age, from the age of four or five, even when they start playing football and they might've played cricket, uh, or they might have played Aussie rules for 10 years. It's really, there's so many transferable skills that actually they're just learning the rules of rugby, the actual complexities of catching and passing they're really good at. Um, and it's probably just the diversity in sport, which probably makes it makes it different for them, um, especially around like catch and pass, which means that their attack and play is really, really good. And like everyone knows, you watch Southern Hemisphere rugby, they like to attack from anywhere. Um, even on their own try line, they'll try and attack because it's very, very attack-minded, attack-focused. But then on the flip side, probably their area where they're not so good is their sort of defence and their sort of forward play. So obviously you would, uh, I guess, you would have done a little bit of research before you taken the role and stuff. And I imagine similar to what all coaches do is you, you start trying to put some maybe session design, session plans together of things you'd like to deliver. Um, with that in mind, in terms of the different skill set, is there any of your sessions from here that you've adapted to the environment that you're going to go into? Um, well, a lot. I think I've been fortunate where I've co I've been lucky enough to coach with sort of coaches from sort of the Southern Hemisphere over the past couple of years. So I've picked up a few things from them. But a lot of my sessions 
especially rugby sessions don't generically look like rugby sessions anyway. So I'll play a lot of like um, rugby netball and I'll play a lot of Aussie rules in sort of the rugby sessions that I design. So it even could be like a lot of my warm ups. So like a 10 minute energizer, I might play Aussie rules or I might play sort of rugby netball um, just because it's a little bit different and it engages the engages the players a little bit more. And it's those transferable skills of like incorporating multi balls, like tennis balls and like, I love doing catch and pass drills with a football because it's re- it teaches really good technique of catching fat part of the ball and having to focus on the pass as opposed to say focusing on trying to spin it or something like that. So I'll probably I'll still have to adapt a little bit further, but I'll, I'll be interested to see when I get out there if I need to change drastically um, with sort of the players I've got. Hopefully I have to because it will challenge me a little bit more. But yeah, be interesting. What made you go down that route then? What made you integrate those types of practice designs or session ideas into your um, into your session? Because I imagine that isn't necessarily a traditional viewpoint of using all these different avenues to improve players. Um, so my like my mum in particular, she coached netball when she was um, when I when I was young. Anyway, I say when she was young, but she would be a bit younger. But when I was a kid, so I ended up getting dragged around sort of netball courts when she coached for some of the sort of netball teams around the country so I spent a lot of time watching my mum coach and she used multiple balls when she coached netball and we had lots of conversations when I got into coaching about how she coached and I just thought it see it made sense to me to pick stuff from other sports where a lot of it is based on hand eye coordination catching skills so things like cricket and netball and a lot of sports where it's about the movement of the ball and moving into space that I could transfer over to make things a little bit different for the players rather than just doing a bog standard rugby session that they've done before. Um, because I, I was always worried that I didn't want the players to feel not engaged because I thought if they're not engaged and they're not having fun, then how much learning are they able to do? Um, and that's sort of where it changed to me. And I did lots of reading and sort of discovered other sort of rugby coaches like Russell Earnshaw, who was coaching with um, the England Pathways at the time, who now runs the Magic Academy. And a lot of the stuff he was doing was sort of multi-ball, didn't necessarily look like a game of rugby. There was sort of rules chucked into players where players were allowed to be offside and disrupt and sort of all those things. And sort of coaches I worked with, like Sean Perry, who were doing similar things, I just kind of took it on board as... as this is a, this seems a bit crazy and different, but actually the players are loving it and it's getting better results than saying coaching conventionally. And so, I guess for you now, you've had a bit of well, like a, a a long period of work where you've been able to see the results of these type of methods. If if you look at maybe th- these types of um, players or these types of sessions compared to your more traditional. What are some of the outcomes that you generically see in, in, in the players? That, what developments do they make maybe ahead of their peers if they don't go down this route? Um, I'd probably say it's the the main one for me is the it's the it's the confidence to take risk. So a lot of the games I'll play where um, I'll do a lot of stuff where I'll put constraints in around you have to do a one-handed offload to score a try. Like all, all offloads have got to be one-handed. And sometimes even sort of tie a hand on onto around a player's back, so he has to use one hand. Just little, little, little things like that. But it's 
it's just given the players confidence to I started I stopped using the phrase take a risk because I associate the word risk with danger and something bad might happen so I just used to say like take an opportunity and have the confidence to take an opportunity in a game and that's why all of my sessions really it's probably the the one thing I noticed the most is players have the confidence to take an opportunity when they see it because a lot of the sessions I run because they're slightly different and I incorporate different training methods of using different balls and setting different challenges and constraints to the players that there'll probably be a lot of mistakes in the game and there'll probably be lots of times the ball will be dropped on the floor or it'll get passed into touch but for me it's more about praising the intent and and looking at the intent of what happens and looking at the intent as that's the positive outcome of did the player see something did he try it yes that's amazing now did it come off no it didn't that that doesn't really matter for me it's more important that he's seen an opportunity he's tried it he's had the confidence to try it and then I'll probably go and reinforce that to him again and, and then sort of for me the feedback will be around so the intent was really good but how can we change sort of that execution what can we do to ensure that it happens next time um and that'll probably be the main difference really as I sometimes think a lot of conventional way of of coaching and it probably happens at the top end more where it's more not to speak out of turn but maybe a bit of a copy and paste in the sort of top end first team environment where I think we're ha we're having a younger crop of players coming through now that are willing to take more risks because the coaching's different and it allows that to happen yeah I think it's it's fascinating and you look at um the best example of this just for me growing up Danny Cipriani he, he'd always be one of yeah. those players you look at really inventive in the way he tries to you know break lines or entice players in you're gonna get the odd occasion where he gives up an interception or gets kicked kicks blocked and I, I find it fascinating the media the way that that's portrayed differently at times so sometimes it would be that he's a genius and then other times he'd be like oh he takes unnecessary risks it's like well actually those two things kind of go hand in hand in order to get that genius moment you're gonna naturally get some occasions where he probably makes a relatively poor decision or makes a very poor execution of a skill and it leads to a bad consequence but i guess it's part and parcel of trying to encourage these younger players that those negatives they're okay just use them as learning opportunities yeah definitely and like I think Cipriani is a prime example and it's it's always it's I don't know it's always baffled me how he, he's only he's only got a handful of England caps because he's probably one of the best players of his generation but I think it it comes down to my personal belief is if you've got a player like him then you let him play and you almost let him run the attack and how they're going to play because there's no point trying to fit Danny Cipriani into a way of playing rugby and try and fit him into a mould of we're going to play this way of rugby and tell him how to play because at the end of the day he's the one that's making the decisions like as a coach you're not playing the game like the players are playing the game they see the what's happening they see the space they see where the opportunities are and that's when obviously if you give them that freedom they're going to make mistakes and stuff but at the end of the day like it's not the end of the world if they make a mistake and they put a kick out because if you weigh up the amount of times where sort of the, that genius has come off and they do something outrageous and it works, it definitely outweighs the amount of times he might have put a kick in and it's gone straight out. Um, 
and yeah, and, and then that's probably my biggest thing is we've got a lot of young players coming through now, like Marcus Smith and people like that who are who do play like Cipriani and they do and you look what happens when they, they get given freedom, like Harlequins winning the league, like came out of nowhere and I'm a massive believer and that's because the coaching setup changed and the coaches that that sort of took over, like just took the handbrakes off the players and, and just let them play and and the players were enjoying it and that's where I think a big thing for coaching is sometimes I think we can I call it being a handbrake and we can sometimes be a handbrake to a lot of players' development and how they play the game because we've kind of got a fixated way of how we think the game should be played. So we think that's best. Um and personally my own belief is you've got to sort of just take the handbrake off and just let the let the players play and sort of give them a framework and stuff. But at the same time they're the ones that are playing the game. Um and yeah, it's like, I think someone said the analogy of it's like having a, you know, you've got a Ferrari parked in the garage, but sort of you, you, you're not let you, you're not letting the driver have the keys for it. Like at the end of the day, if you've got, a, if you've got a million pound car in the garage, you want to go and drive it and you want to go and drive it fast. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That makes complete sense. I, I guess around that topic, how do you get players to identify what's a good opportunity and maybe what's an opportunity that they're forcing because they want to try and be creative and want to be brave and all that type of things. What what processes do you put in place to try and support players with that? Probably for me, it's around the it's it's probably the most crucial part of coaching, really, because it's the sort of it's the ability to have a really good coaching eye to see that to start with, but then also how you feed that back to the players. And if I strip it back further, it probably comes back to having a really good player IDP. So individual development plan, which I'm sure every other sport has for their players as well. But it's probably making sure that you understand with the IDP how each player wants to be spoken to and how they want their feedback to be given. And then identifying that in a training session and then being able to sort of use feedback as the coach, but also getting the players to feedback through I really like sessions being filmed and sessions being filmed with a drone so you can see over the top of the, the sort of what's happening and then sort of setting that dialogue with the players of sending them clips or having those in the moment discussions of really good feedback where you have a chat around what's happened and sort of not so much sometimes players will want to be told but I think majority of the time it's how can we have how can we how can we structure our questioning really well so players players start answering the questions for themselves and they, they, they're they reflecting in their own mind of the sort of seven steps that's just happened before them that's led to that moment. Um, so I'd probably say the biggest, that's the probably process for me is sort of you, you, the, your coaching eye, your, how you're structuring your feedback through questions and then how relatable is it to their IDP and, 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 and how they want to receive the feedback. I think that's interesting around the, the feedback area in terms of their IDP and stuff. So I'd imagine as a coach, it, it's going to make you very purposeful around your planning. So if you're working on, you know, if you're working on variations of attacking moves between your fly half and your inside centre, you know, you could have potentially five or six players over a squad that you're going to be, the bulk of your session is going to be focused on all of those five could have very different learning styles, very different learning outcomes, different types of IDPs. And then you're having to manage yourself to support that player. So there might be one player who wants it very direct and says, no, no, 
like I prefer it when you step in, stop the game, and just show and tell me exactly what I need to do. Whereas there might be another player where he's like, just as the game's going on, just mention to me, can you give this a go? And then I prefer it like that. So I imagine that does is around the skill of the coach and, and having relationships with those players in those moments. Yeah, definitely. Because they they if you don't know how they want to be spoken to and you don't know them well enough and you don't know how to approach that, even if you're a really, really good coach and your coaching eye, as I call it, is really good and you can spot those moments, if you're not able to sort of convey that to the player in a way that they're going to be able to hear it, like it's sort of it's falling on deaf ears in a way because they're not going to take it on board so that's why it's so crucial to really really get to know the people you work with on a personal level because you'll understand them as a person of how they how they respond to communication and how they'd rather as you just said take it in some prefer to be told some prefer to be shown as in i might have to show them and stop the session and sort of run the line for them or some of them would want to see it on a I made a mistake a few years ago coaching a school team where I was watching a premiership game at the weekend and probably every coach has done this, but I, it, like a team ran a move and I was like, that, uh, that move is amazing. I'm going to go in on Tuesday and try it with the school, like the school team. And I said, right, this is how, this is what we're going to do. And just told them and we went out there and it didn't work and the players weren't understanding it. And I got really frustrated and was tearing my hair up being like, this is so, this is not the simplest move ever, but that was me like very new into a position. I didn't know the players. I didn't know anything about them. And what I probably should have done on reflection and how I changed it is there's so many ways you could show them. Number one, are they, are, are they able to perform that is a sort of, do they have the skill set to perform that? If they do, you know, I, I've got time before where I can show them the video footage and get what they think and almost sometimes maybe get the players to sort of lead it and run it themselves. And then, sort of then go out there and show them rather than just telling them and expecting them to be able to do something. So it's, it sounds like obviously with with your, I guess, creative style of coaching and the fact that, you know, down under in Australia, they're, they're very attacking based and whatnot. That seems like quite a good marriage in terms of your skill set and beliefs as a coach and a lot of their skill set and, you know, habits as players. That must be quite exciting for you in terms of being able to, I guess, learn the attacking side further, but then obviously potentially teach them some, some of the stuff that we would do more traditionally up here as well. Yeah, definitely. Because my that's probably sort of my my area of probably strength is I've been lucky enough, like the stuff I did with Scotland with the 16s, I've been very like defence focused. So I focused a lot on on how a team defends and I, I really enjoy that and, and, and love defense and my sort of weaker area has sort of been attack and that's where I've tried to work on over the past couple of years so that's where for me it, it's really I'm really excited but I'll definitely be challenged in that area because I'll be learning a lot of new stuff around attack but hopefully with my knowledge on defense that's where I can I can also help them because the sort of the creativity I might take to sort of attacking sessions based around attacking space i'll do the same around defending space as well so um there's lots of sort of games you can play which are which are fun to start off a session which involve defense which i've always loved doing so for me it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how i can t if how i can take that to australia basically but yeah uh, obviously you don't have a, a, a 
tactics board or anything by you to show me this, but have you got any examples of, of really simple drills or sessions that you do use at the start of the game to kind of encompass a little bit of defence that you've just mentioned there? Yeah, so uh, like a really good one is getting uh, pairing players up and getting them to... Um, before I've used you can, you can get these bands basically and it's almost like tag bouts and then in the middle they velcro to each other so you have about a meter like a meter or a half a meter gap and the two players are velcro together and you pair players up and then the if the, the attacking team basically they they don't have to be sort of velcroed and tied up but two defenders always have to be so if you're playing 8v8 you're going to have sets of two defenders that are constantly tag to each other and if they separate and sort of move too far apart the Valcro breaks um, and if you're looking at saying like checking your spacings and staying connected as, as, as two defenders and working in pairs that's sort of a really good way to um, that's a really good way of sort of getting people to work together um, I like doing that and also using pool noodles as a like do you know those things you get for swimming pools they're like the massive long five foot things and you like when you go to the simple you just start smashing each other on the head with them yeah. you can use them in in sort of uh defensive sessions as well as uh sometimes if you have low numbers they're really good to use if you might only have a lot of people even sort of the level i coach at we sometimes we might have less players than expected just because kids getting away from school parents having to leave work early so sometimes you use like pool noodles for defenders so if the attackers get touched they've got to go down with the pool noodle um just little little things like that which will make the players a little bit excited because it's different and they've probably never used it before but actually the principles of sort of what we want to get out of it through our say our maybe our defense philosophy or our attack philosophy are the same it's just thinking a, a little bit differently of what can we incorporate into sessions like stuck in the mud like all that all those different types of sort of schoolyard games that sort of we love as a kid but actually like subliminally, they're really good for sort of developing sort of attacking and defensive skills. It's in the opportunity to whack my friend with a pool noodle. I'm all in on that. So, so <laughs> I think I can imagine what the kids yeah. are like with it. Um, so linking back, you obviously mentioned around your role with Scotland and stuff. And um, one area that really fascinates me, um, I guess, with rugby is kind of the talent ID element of it. Um, in a football context, you know, obviously a lot of teams play very similar ways now because of the academy pathway. So although there are differences in player, you can obviously see that most people want technically accomplished players, all that type of stuff. In rugby, obviously, with, with the diversity that you're going to have within a group from your hooker and props all the way through to your fullbacks and fly halves, how do you go around setting the diameters for your talent ID pool and what you're looking for and then how do you on the ground level actually go and identify the, these players so we'll have a um that's a really good question we'll we'll have a we'll sort of have a, a makeup of say what uh what a hooker or a prop or a second row or a fly off any position what they might what sort of attributes they they obviously need to kick on so for someone who's in the forwards, it might be, say, a second row. They'll be jumping in, in the line-out. So there'll be certain like position-specific criteria that we'll look for. Um, and there'll be like a, a sort of a very rough framework, especially for the younger players, because we don't want to pigeonhole them into a position too early. Um, and sort of the beauty of it in the 
a, a lot of the environments I've worked in is the a lot of coaches are very open for players to move positions. So just because at 16 a player's playing in the centres, that doesn't mean he's going to be a centre forever. We actually have lots of boys that, it's like we had a couple for Scotland two years ago who went from the centres into the front row. And then they've kicked on now and they've played, you know, they've signed pro contracts and they're playing in the front row. But at 16, they were playing in the centres. And I suppose it's the, that's where you've got to, if we had a, it would be amazing if you had a magic ball and you could sort of see where the players are going to be in the future. But it's always, it's just trying to look to see where the players might be in six or seven years' time and, and what they might look like. And that's probably where you've got to have an open mind of, yeah, they might be playing one position, but actually, They've got some attributes. How how might that fit into another position in sort of two or three years' time that they might sort of develop into? Because they might have, um, they might be physically at, at sort of fifteen years old. They might be amazing playing uh, sort of in the back row. They might be unbelievable at it. But actually, with where they might grow to with their size and their strength, and they might have really good footwork and really good hands well we know that if you want to be a prop nowadays you have to have good footwork you have to have hands you've got to be a bit quick and you've got to be a ball player so actually he's probably not going to be a back row player long term but actually he might transition really well into being a front row player um and be a prop or a hooker and you look at players like jamie george now like that's what you're looking for in hookers is they play it they're really good out in ball in hand open field they try things they're trying kicks and that's that's sort of the game of the future with the forwards is they're going to be ball players more so actually we're probably going to see a lot more backs transition into forwards um in in years to come and that's probably using various sort of player id sort of talent id frameworks but definitely for me it's about not getting so hung up on where they are at the moment and what they're doing. It's kind of looking at where they could be in three or four years time. And that's really hard and it's impossible. And I don't think anyone's sort of got the, got the sort of the mystic meg ball to tell you where that player is going to be. Sometimes it is a bit of a sort of risk and a chance to move a player position. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard, but having sort of frameworks of sort of what we might want from certain positions does help. And does Scotland have like a set way of playing? Because I can imagine that would play into like some of the players that are therefore selected. Like if you're going, this is at the top level, but if you're going very pack heavy, so you're going, you know what, we're going to focus on the fact that we're going to be good at line out, good at scrums, good at rucks, good at malls. Then you're going to have a different profile of your flankers potentially. To if you go, actually, we're going to be really expansive. We're going to have ball in hand, and we're going to try and break lines through creative attacking play. That would present you with quite different profile of players. So, do they have like a set way that they like to play both in and out of possession? Yeah, yeah, they'll have even to sort of down to sixteen level. Um, it's that that where it's really important that sort of there'll be a sort of a, a sort of where it's really good. And, and I think since Greg has taken over at the sort of top end, he wants all teams to play really at like an attacking style of rugby. And that's really down to sort of the 16s level, which is like the entry level for the age grade stuff is we're lucky where we get told, like, we just want to see the players play. Um, we want to see them like, display as much attacking rugby as possible and that goes all the way up and then when you when you see that in the national team like the Scotland team at the moment the past two or three years have probably played 
some of the best attacking rugby they've ever played. And I think they just want that principle and that mindset and that philosophy in the players all the way through. And we'll have certain... Um, there'll be certain things that we might do in a game of how we might we, we might set um, set them up off or we might give them a bit of framework around right off nine or off 10. This is what it might look like. Um, but at 16, it's very rough and it's very raw just to allow, it's just basically to give them a little bit of knowledge that when if they do progress up to the 17s, 18s, 19s and 20s, they're just familiar with some keywords and terminology. So if they do get put into an 18 setup, it's not the first time they they might have come across certain language, so there'd be like a shared language and like a shared vision that will that will buy into his coaches that then will talk to the players about so they understand it. So there's there's just lots of clarity around sort of what we're doing and 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 how we want to go about it, which is probably why you know we've got a a lot of really really good young Scottish players coming through at the moment. So if you look at that example, say like an off nine, what what type of challenges are you putting in place for him to, to obviously at 16, it's still a deve developmental age group. You want to play this expansive attacking style of play. What type of challenges and language is being used to encourage him to develop it in that facet? So uh, uh, like a common thing you see in rugby is there'll be a breakdown, the nine will get the ball, the nine will pass it to say a pod of forwards and then the pod of forwards will just crash it at the middle. Or there might be a pick and go from the base of a ruck. So we want to, there's a time and a place to do that sometimes. If the best space is there, then you do it. But for the sort of style of rugby we want to play, the sort of challenges we'll be saying to the players is, right, if you're first receiver off nine, what else can you do apart from just running at the person in front of you? So we'll talk a lot around, can you put a, can you tip it onto the person next to you? So the person who's on your outside shoulder or, in, or inside shoulder, actually they might have a bit more space than you do to break the line. So actually, can you tip it on or can you get the ball and can you maybe challenge yourself further and try to put a pass in behind out to maybe another forward that's five or six metres out from you or maybe an even bigger pass to say, your fly off who stood there in loads of space because he's going to put a kick in behind. So it's probably definitely around the around the forwards. It's it's getting them to pa just to be comfortable and have the confidence to pass the ball a lot more um, rather than just taking it in. Obviously, they have to be good at taking it in because that they they will do that. But it's kind of getting them in the mindset of of right. I get the ball in hand. Can I use a bit of footwork? Can I maybe get a hand off in and offload the ball and move the ball straight away and become a I don't like to use the word ball carrier. I prefer to say ball player. So even if you're a forward, you, you still, you, you, let's just try and be as good as first receiver as a nine or a 10 would be. Like there's no, in my mind, there's no reason why a prop can't catch the ball and put a pass in. Um, and it's just giving them confidence to do that. And then with the backs, it's more around if we, if uh, you're a fullback and someone kicks the ball to you and you catch it, and you've got 25, 30 metres of space in front of you, yes, a really good option might be to kick the ball out and, and gain some territory for a kick, but actually how can you as a player challenge yourself to maybe try and beat a few defenders? And even if you get tackled and you get turned over, like have a bit of confidence and challenge yourself to just try and maybe sidestep someone or try and run with the ball forward. and Or maybe can you, can you use a bit of communication and pull your inside or outside winger closer to you and put a kick in for him or maybe create a 2v1 to uh, sort of attack the best space. That's probably the main the main thing is just looking 
at where the best space is and how can we attack it. And how do you merge those those requirements or those suggestions with obviously an individual that's placed for a club team who might do it very, very different? So you might be saying about being expansive and trying all these different elements, but then when they come from, and I'm just chucking names out, I don't know if he's right, but you might be Wasps or Leicester or Newcastle who have no interest in that and just want to box kit and, and chase it. How do you go around merging that with the individual so that they understand, I guess they understand the environments and then are using the skills that that, that is required in the right environment? Um, I'd probably say again, it's it's sometimes down to we we will the players will sort of get sent loads of stuff out before a camp and before we have them, so they'll sort of they'll get a, a little overview of what we want in the sessions and what we'll be looking for. So that they can read and we'll send them clips so they can see what we want. But then when we get them in the sort of training session and games that we play, again, it would just be around having those little conversations with them and just getting them to think a little bit differently. So not necessarily telling them what they do is wrong, because I don't believe there's sort of any decisions wrong, because really you're just making the decisions. That player's just making the decisions based upon what he knows and if he's spent his time just carrying the ball into contact and picking and going, like it, it's, it then comes down to me as the coach to show him like what can happen if you just take the ball and pass it two metres and how can that change the game. So that, that's probably where we've got to coach more and be more effective as coaches to not just assume the players know how to do it because we as coaches know, oh yeah, just get the ball here, put a player in space and he's going to make a line break. But if that player is 16 years old, and he spent the past five years playing in a certain way because of the club that he's at or the school that he's at, then it's I think it's unfair on us to assume that he knows what to do. So that's where we've just got to help him discover without telling him too much a different way of playing, which is just adding a another skill to his toolbox. So hopefully the great thing is, is when a player comes to us and he spends maybe a week with us at a camp, he then goes away and we we watch him play at his club or we hear one of his club coaches say, oh, he's, he was doing this in the game or he tried this. And and you see how he develops a little bit more and how actually when we get him again in three months' time, we d- he's, he's doing what we spoke about before, but actually he's developed so much more and actually he's tactically more aware of what's going on around him. But yeah, it definitely comes down to just us as coaches probably not assuming they know it and we will have to speak to them and question and show them sometimes. I think that's really interesting. It's almost being in that additional environment can be a real positive for someone. So if, if, if a simple way, if everyone played the same way and then they go into the same environment, they're developing a set of skills. Whereas if they do come from a different environment and then comes yours, which has a completely different set of tools that actually as long as they go back and implement it in their club culture or school side or whatever they're developing themselves better as a player because they're getting exposure to lots of different different angles which i think is is great um obviously you mentioned around um having players for camps and stuff so i'm not entirely sure what like a fixture schedule would look like for you guys and and whether you're in competition out of competition it was just friendly matches etc but what would that traditionally look like? And then I guess for me, in terms of a camp leading into a, a fixture, 
what um, if you could just talk us through like what planning and prep would be done for players coming into that camp setup? So they'll get. We will have. We'll watch uh, sort of school games. We'll watch club games. Uh, we'll watch it on film, or we'll go. I'll travel to a game to go and watch someone play, and then we'll basically put a sort of like a forty, fifty man squad together, and then we will invite them to a weekend camp where we will basically do lo- a range of different things from them from. Uh, looking at individual skill stuff. So we they'll come to us and they'll be like, I'm prop, prop on the second row, I'm this, I'm that. And then we'll work with them individually. We'll then do some sort of lots of small side games um, around attacking stuff, defensive stuff. Um, and then we'll do that for, we'll have probably two camps or three camps of doing that with a massive large squad. And then we basically have like, a, a we'll have fixtures at Murrayfield where we'll play internal fixtures. So it'll be Scotland v Scotland. Um, and then we'll have, like, we've been very fortunate where we there's an international festival at Colwyn Bay that happens every year um, down in North Wales. So we will have a fixture there against um, Welsh regions, um, sort of like Welsh colleges side, um, and we'll play three or four fixtures down there against them, which is sort of more the competitive uh, sort of games. So then our what once we've trimmed down the squad and we've sort of got like a squad of 30 that's sort of when we'll the camps leading up to that will be more around sort of how we're going to play and what the game might look like um so it goes from being very much more of like an assessment of what the players are to we see kind of put players into sort of pick the players that we want and then we'll go into sort of a few camps of preparing them for the games that we're going to play either at Murrayfield very lucky and fortunate we get to play up there um, and use their facilities. And then for our sort of bigger international festival where some of the older age grade coaches will come down and watch them and just have a look at sort of the, what players they might get in the next 12 to 18 months time. Um, But the good thing is we, we keep in contact with all players. So even if a player doesn't make it into sort of that initial sort of camp for a game, we might play at Murrayfield we might he might after say two or three months of developing away on his IDP of what we've we've told him um, he might need to go and work on we he might drop back in in two or three months time when he's actually when when he's sort of improved a little bit um, but yeah it's a it's it's a lot it's a lot of admin and I'm I'm very fortunate that I don't have to do the bulk of that admin and all the paperwork that comes into it um, we've got a guy called Rob Riley who's the sort of performance manager for. For that side of things and he's yeah he's like the guru of all things when it comes to stuff like that so he's a uh, yeah he 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 is the sort of the he he basically should have all the credit for everything that goes into it basically we're just the minions that come in and coach and and get to do the cool stuff basically where he does the he's doing the tough stuff <laughs> so in terms of like framing going into one of those camps like in preparation for a fixture or preparation for those, those tournaments obviously you mentioned earlier that you send potentially some little clips out of, of how you want to play what would that experience look like um from i guess the few days before or the week before when you're sending them those clips all the way through to that game time they're on at murrayfield playing in the fixture what would the experience for the player look like um, through there? Kind of when do you train? How often do you train? W- what does that look like? They'll get 
so they're, they're, they are very lucky and they're very fortunate and we we do treat it as much as a performance camp as possible when we're leading up to a game so basically the sort of week leading up to it when we have them it is really structured on on we're lucky enough we, it coincides with sort of school holidays and stuff as well so we actually get them like imagine a team building up to like a six nations or a world cup it's treated very similarly where they'll have some snc in the morning we'll then go into a training session they'll have lunch we'll that we might, we'll have analysis there might be some physio work and then we'll go into another training session and then some analysis in the evening um and then they get full stashed out as well so they get they all get like kit bags and they get full scotland kit with sort of numbers and initials and stuff on it so it's a it's a really cool experience for them and it's and it's and we're lucky at 16 we can we keep it quite fun where at Colwyn Bay last year we did like a they had to do like a panto show for us basically where they just took piss out of us coaches for an hour and a half solid which we weren't expecting but it was brilliant um and and yeah we it's just it's giving them a sort of feel and a taste of sort of what 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 they can go on to do and so when they go up to under 18s where it is very it's it's similar the same it's not a foreign environment for them so like we keep it sort of structured and planned into timings because that's what it's going to be like for them when they step up to the next level and our biggest fear is is we don't want them to step up a level and be daunted by the sort of admin side of things of just being in an environment that they've never been in before because it's like with anything really if you haven't experienced something and you experience it for the first time you can sometimes go you can become a little bit closed off and it might affect how you perform and how you conduct yourself when actually you're a really good player, you're a really good kid, but actually just the experience has been a bit daunting for you. So that's why at 16, we probably go to that level of of preparation and giving them as close to that sort of international experience as possible so that it's not foreign to them when they when they sort of, when, when they move up in it. And I think it helps with their confidence and it helps them sort of, it might, in a lot of players, I notice it sparks a little bit of, wow, this is actually what, what I could achieve and actually if I look back on the past six months leading up to this game I've actually put in a lot of hard work and I should probably pat myself on the back as a player to say actually I've worked really hard and I'm in this position because yeah I've got the help of my sort of my parents and my coaches and my school and my friends but actually I it's important sometimes to the players to say actually yeah I've done a good job myself and and, and that's probably really important to us as well. So it sounds like it's very streamlined in terms of if you can mirror what happens all the way through the pathway, it's obviously just going to help players understand what they're coming into when, when they come there, which is, I think is only going to be a positive, as you said, you know, if, if they fail on the admin side, that's the bit that you feel like you can, you can affect more um, so. How do you go around integrating players together? Um, this is a big one for me. Uh, I, I listen to interviews from all over the place. Um, you look at England football teams from many a year ago where they say that, you know, United boys are on one table, the Liverpool boys are on another, Chelsea on another. Um, you look at the Lions at the moment, obviously they're going to be out in South Africa. They, you know, you've got Alinwin Jones and uh, Mario Toje would normally be knocking seven bells out of one another and now potentially they're, they're on the same team. So how do you go around integrating the players is there any apart from the panto where they all come together to give the coaches stick yeah. is there any other particular methods you use in, in that area it's interesting because it, it even happens at our level where we'll get players together and straight away the boys that play at one club or one school they'll just all go and sit on the same table together 
And it's, 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 it's interesting because especially when they turn up and we haven't given them their Scotland kit yet, they're in their like club kit or their sort of school kit or academy kit. And a lot of them will just all sit together and they all know each other. So what we do is, is we beforehand, we'll find out, we know their schools, we know their clubs, and we'll purposely put them with people they don't know. And we'll room them with people they don't know as well. So we'll put a kid, say, we might have a kid at one school, we'll put him with a kid from a completely different school, from a different completely part of the country that they don't know each other. Um, and we'll sort of, we'll, we'll, we'll set little leadership groups up as well. And we'll purposely put people in leadership groups that aren't usually together. Um, that kind of helps to help people get to know each other a little bit more, but even just sort of generic icebreakers of getting people to stand up and just speak about themselves could be, what's your name? Where are you from? Uh, tell us an interesting fact about yourself that no one else knows. It's usually a good, like really simple, but it, it's effective and it works. And I think it's, we make sure we do things with them where we'll have sort of like a cinema night. We'll take them out somewhere like when we're at Colwyn Bay, we'll all go down to the seaside together and get ice creams. And and I think just trying to do as many sort of social aspect things with them as possible. So they, they speak to each other a lot more. Um, and yeah, just a lot of away from the rugby stuff seems to work quite a lot where um, they just those how many sort of interactions and connections can they make with each other through stuff that's outside of the rugby remit so doing things with them sort of socially um making sure that sort of everyone's mixed around at meal times and everyone's not sat with each other um and they they, they sort of meet somebody different and speak to somebody they wouldn't usually speak to it's like sometimes we have to kind of push them towards doing it because they won't just do it naturally because it's not natural to especially for a 16 year old is you just sometimes like to keep yourself to the people that you know and keep yourself to yourself. So sometimes you might have to push that a little bit, but not too much, but yeah, it's definitely around the social things and even doing little things like I've incorporated little games. Like you've probably heard of it. It's like a game called double. So it's like a, it's like a card game and it has little pictures on like five or six pictures on the card and you get groups of five or six lads to sit down and, a little picture on there might be a house and they've got to pick something on there and then they've got to speak about sort of what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you see this and just little, little tiny things like that, where it just breaks little icebreakers, like little team building games around, uh, like giving them a bucket with 17 holes in it and you've got to fill it full of water and get 10 liters of water from one side to the other. And you've only got a certain amount of things to do, like tiny little things that, that, that it's not really relatable to them playing the game in the sense of technical and tactical, but it's relatable in the sense of they bond together. They get to know each other. They get to know each other, sort of each other's soft skills, which, which if they don't uh, like, if they can't adapt that and they can't develop that, then that it doesn't matter how good of a rugby player they are. They won't be able to do it on the pitch. So it's, yeah, it's without waffling too much about it. It's those little transferable soft skills that they develop through sort of, team building and social events that probably help them on the pitch when they're when they're sort of things might get a little bit tough so uh, there's two questions off the back of that so the first one is what's the most interesting fact that you've had from someone when you said about telling something that not everyone knows about you and then the second one is what was the purpose of the leadership groups what would they do during the, the camp um etc uh most interesting fact I've ever had was David Beckham's cousin was a really good one. And we were like, 
we were like, no, that's we were like, that's that's bull. That's not true at all. And then he and then he literally got his phone out and was showing his photos. And we were like, oh my god, he's in it. That's he sat in his car. He's in his house. Like here's like a Snapchat of him and and David Beckham. Like we were like, oh my god, it this is actually true. That was that was pretty cool. That is the coolest thing I've ever had. Um, and then it was sort of the next seven days of can we get David Beckham's phone number? <laughs> but yeah, that was that that was pretty cool. Um, and and then so what was the second question? My memory is all around Sorry. the leadership. So what's the purpose of the leadership groups? What what role do they um, have? So really, it's the we we made mistakes before in camps that we had where sort of us as the coaches sort of led everything all the time. So we led all the meetings, we led the analysis, we led the, all of the coaching that happened on the pitch. And it was very much just like coach driven. And then we sort of changed to a more of a 50, 50 split where we want to give the players rather than having like the captain who might lead us, we will give the responsibility of the captain to lead a certain aspect of training or a game or, or something off field things players became very dependent on us and it showed in just how they conducted themselves and how they then played the game so we just took a step back really and thought well if we can if we can say we'll have a we pick a captain for a game but then throughout the week we might have six leadership groups that are from a various different things from we might have a leadership group that focuses on the performance analysis so they actually lead the analysis sessions we had another one so like a forwards leadership group and a backs leadership group and then we had a music leadership group so one of the guys three of them were in charge of the music for the bus um we had like a like a social leadership group where some of the boys were in charge of coming to us and saying right can we do this can we do that obviously they're 16 so they can't go to the pub but it's more like, oh, could we go to the cinema? Could we go? Could we go down to the beach, or could we go out and go for a meal together? And it's just about. And I really enjoyed, sort of, sometimes getting the kids who are a little bit, a little bit more shy and have less confidence, and trying to get them into a leadership role and seeing how they flourished. Um, and it's just about trying to give the kids, you know, more opportunities to lead, and and not necessarily giving it to the people who might be capped at their clubs and schools like seeing what can happen if you put someone else that's usually not in a leadership position in a leadership position and I think it's when the players feel like they've got more control of what's happening in the environment they take more care of it and that was definitely we definitely saw that in how they played and how they conducted themselves because they definitely had a lot more pride about what they were doing because they had we'd given them some responsibility and in, in some aspects and they, they grew in confidence and that's probably one of the main reasons is as much as sort of yeah we're we're the co we're here to coach them we're also here to sort of give them the best experience and i think the only way you can do that is by giving them responsibility and accountability to take some ownership of it like even being in control of the music like what music is played on the bus like that I, I can't describe to you that the boys literally had meetings that went on for hours on what playlist on Spotify to put together to, to just play on the back of the bus, but they loved it. Like, and when certain boys had song would come on, they'd love it and they'd sing and like, they just really enjoyed it. And it just, it adds to that togetherness and the boys making connections. Like the biggest thing I spoke to them about is I don't want them to, 
go away from a year spent with us and not keep in contact with each other. And then it was great to see sort of before COVID hit, we had photos come through of some of the boys from the previous years that had met up with each other outside of sort of being with us with Scotland. And it was just great to see those sort of connections and memories that they're making because I just feel like if we can just help them create as many memories as possible, even like if they don't go on to play 18s or 20s or professionally, they still would have had a really good experience. And for some of them, it might be the pinnacle of their rugby career to play Scotland 16s. So if the, if that is the case, let's make it the sort of best experience for them and let's make sure that they create some really good memories with each other. I like the music one. I've seen a lot of the leadership groups in terms of analysis and all that, but I think, yeah, using, using the music one is a big one and that does play into some people's forte. Yeah. A lot of the lads, they, they love their music up to date and, um, you know, on that front, I think that's a, that's a really good and useful way of doing it. So you mentioned... But, but sorry, sorry to interrupt, but on that, I get like the the players, there was a, we send them the training sessions and they watch the training sessions back. And there was one of them where I was defence coach and I like, uh, I was in completely the wrong position. And it's like rule number one, I, I quickly learned it. Defence coaches sometimes in rugby, they stand behind the defence. And I used to do it when I first went into it. And now I don't. It always baffles me why coaches do it because you should be in front of the defence so you can see body language and all that kind of stuff. But I was got taught a very harsh lesson in in why not to stand behind a defence when the attack's running towards you. And one of the boys made a line break and didn't see me and was running straight to me. And I had to turn and sprint away from him and it was caught on camera. That incident happened like five years ago. They've made a gif about it and it gets circulated in WhatsApp groups that I'm in to this day still. And they post it on Instagram stories to this day, just ripping the piss out of me for it still. And like, it's great to see because it's like, it's re- it was really funny. And I love the fact that they felt they, were, they were, had the confidence to do it. But yeah, they love it and they just take the piss out of it. And the fact they made a gif of it made me laugh a lot. But yeah, it just reinforced sort of why it's sometimes it's okay to sort of give the players a bit of freedom like that. Yeah, they, maybe they just need to add the Lenny, uh, no, the Benny Hill soundtrack to it as well. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> um, so, oh, so you mentioned a kind of around accountability was the word that you used. So looking at them holding each other accountable um, when they're in these leadership positions, um, is that something that you saw improvements with both in and out of games? So like just standards around hotels and stuff like that, or, you know, in games where someone's maybe missed a tackle or not come up to line quick enough. Did you see those benefits come out as well? Yeah, definitely. Like, I think the one main thing is when we are away with Scotland, we are, we're like, we're very respectful of the fact that we are, we're privileged enough to represent Scotland. And when we are walking around, we're in kit and we've got the, we're wearing the thistle and people know who we are. And it's, it's just really important to know, to show that we just respect all the environments that we go into and, and sort of, it's important that the players say hello to the hotel staff and that they're like, they're not relying on the cleaner to clean their bedroom. They make their beds in the morning and, they pick up rubbish on the coach and um i think one of the main ones is one of the players said when we go down for for food for breakfast and lunch and dinner can we make sure we all wear the same kit so if we're all going to wear shorts and long sleeve t-shirts we all wear shorts and long sleeve t-shirts and one of the boys sort of said one of a couple of the boys came down and there's sh- like short sleeve t-shirts on and the lad that was in charge of the leadership group on making sure sort of they everyone looks the same 
just like was eating and saw it and walked over and just said to them like oh did you get the message it was in the whatsapp group blah 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 and just kind of just asked them about it and then he found out that it was sort of it was dirty so they only had the short sleeve t-shirt that's why they wore it and then he put a really cool message in the group and said um we've all got like basically it's not acceptable that two of them came down in different kit and it's not their fault we should have communicated better to make sure that um we basically all came down in short sleeves so actually it's not their fault it's our fault because we should have communicated more so that was really nice to see that that he'd sort of taken that upon himself to do that in a really nice way as well like he wasn't a dick about it and called them out he just went and had a little conversation and then actually looked to the group and held the whole group accountable not just the two lads which was which i thought was really mature um and we've had a, like other incidences of the sort of just the boys just seeing the boys clean the changing rooms up after they finished and putting stuff in the bin and one of the boys told one of the boys not to leave rubbish on the floor on the coach and make sure that the coach is cleared when we use it to and from games and yeah it was just not, it was just nice to see them take pride in in sort of what they were doing with themselves because that's all that sort of stuff's transferable to outside of rugby when they're out and about and they go off to school or college or university so seeing those little examples i think just kind of show to us coaches that it's uh if we give them some responsibility and we give them some leadership responsibilities that they're they're it's nice to see them holding themselves accountable so what happens when you've got individuals who challenge that culture because i imagine you know when when this all well like you said there that would be a brilliant environment to be in but i imagine there are going to be some individuals that don't necessarily buy into all of that initially so how did you or the how did the group go around challenging those um behaviors i think for for 16 we don't expect the boys at all to uh, deal with the sort of challenge like that because they are only 16 and, and to be able to deal with confrontation and co like conflict resolution um that's quite a mature thing to have to do and i don't think at 16 you've probably been in enough experiences or even lived long enough to be able to effectively deal with conflict resolution like i had a zoom call with a guy who was a hostage negotiator so dealing in like the top end of sort of conflict resolution and he's been doing it for 40 years and he's not an expert in it so we can't expect sort of young kids to be experts in it and that's probably where we as the coaches step in like we've had um we've had lads for instance that before have been really poor on timings like just just sticking to timings of being somewhere five minutes early um and the other players will get annoyed about it but then I from I probably take it upon myself to just sit down and have a chat with them about it and just speak to them around like why do they think timings are important and the interesting thing um that, that have come from it is some of the players have said that they've never really had to they've never been hold they've never been held accountable for timings before um so apart from going to school and being five minutes late for lessons they've never really been like it's never been enforced to be on time for something so then really like it's not their fault if they've never been taught it or shown it before that's probably that then comes to my job as the coach to sort of speak to them around what this is important because of this and then talk to them around why it's important why why are we saying you need to be five minutes early like what why is that like what's happening and then even just explaining to them the whole sh like schedule of the day of why we need to be 
on time here. And then I try and make it contextual to the players and say, look, it seems a long way away now, but when you finish university or you go into full-time work, if you're five minutes late for work, you'll get told off. And that might lead to a sort of disciplinary, a written warning and even potentially losing your job. So it might seem daft at the moment, but it's just getting into the mindset of those little tiny sort of non-negotiables, you might say, are important at 16. And I think it's important for us to realise that actually not all kids know that. And I was lucky that I had a dad who was in the military. So he was in the parachute regiment. So for me, like it was five minutes before the five minutes and he dropped me off everywhere 20 minutes early. And like, pick, like he'd be there 20 minutes early, ready to pick me up. And like, I was just very lucky where I was experienced around, like I was brought up that way. So for me, it's like second nature around some things, but for a lot of kids, it's not because they haven't had that. And that's where I think that's where the challenge comes from sometimes. And I think that's where us as coaches, especially for younger kids, we've got to step in and just like speak to them and talk to them like adults about it. Yeah, I think it's a really challenging uh, situation around just like behaviours that you don't want in the camp and then how you go around challenging people on it. Because ultimately you don't want it to carry on. Like in that situation, you don't want them to keep turning up five minutes late for stuff. Like if you've got six appointments over the day and they turn up five minutes late to each of them and that has a knock on the fence, everything, that's half an hour extra. So that might be yeah, half yeah. an hour off of meal time at the end or half an hour late for the cinema, which means you've missed a third of the film or, or something like that. So you don't want those con- those behaviors to carry on but then obviously you don't want to do it in a way where you lose them and they're like well no this is so disproportionate i was five minutes late it's a real balancing act and i guess links back to that idp stuff of knowing the individual and understanding their background their you know what they're used to at school how they're supported or what they used to club how they supported and then go okay well i'm going to challenge you on this this can be the thing over that this camp that we're, we're going to work towards um so moving, I guess, in a slightly di- different direction, we mentioned it briefly earlier, is you've got the Lions-South um, Africa tour coming up, which is a pretty big deal in, in the rugby world at the moment. I guess from your professional opinion, shall we say, what do you see as the Lions' best path for victory? What would you say in your professional opinion is what you would go down to try and beat what is, from my understanding and my limited experience, strong... <laughs> South African pack and a very, very tough, high pressure defensive line. Uh, it, oh, wow. That's a tough question. I, from watching South Africa play so far, they are, they're very system driven in defense. So that they have a very high press aggressive defense, but they're very drilled in the system of where they should stand and where they should be. Now, I've watched them back in, if I, if I would be saying to say the nine, I'd be saying that there is space all around the breakdown. When they, when they re- basically, when they reload and they fold around the breakdown or they fold around the, the scrum, they leave massive gaps everywhere. So if I was the sort of lions, I'd be saying to them, look, when we're, when we're getting into position, actually sometimes just look in front of you because that, that's where the best space might be because they're so fixated on sort of getting around the corner in a ruck and filling the field and defending the space that actually they're not actually watching where the lines where the lines players are going necessarily. 
They're just trying to get into the position they've trained in all week. And I think that's where they're going to do them is just to look up, attack the best space because they're very system driven and that's where the gaps are going to be. Now they push really high up in defense. So actually it might be a case of the lines might exploit the little chip over the top a lot more. And I think with big wingers like uh, Van der Merwe and having someone like Louis Rizamit on the wing, who's really quick, there's going to be lots of space out there. There's going to be lots of space in behind. And I'd probably say it's going to be the, it sounds daft, but the battle of the space, like who can, who can exploit that space the best. And I think the way that I could be completely wrong, but I think, South Africa are too system driven in defence and that's going to be their downfall. Their defence is amazing. It's very good, but it sounds daft that it's almost watertight, but there's gaping holes in the defence that I think are there to be exploited. Um, I think if the Lions get into a battle of playing them at their own game and they just play sort of one style of rugby and try and hit it up against them, that just plays into the South African hands because they love that confrontation. I think it will be a case of... um, just making them feel uncomfortable. And I think they're going to be uncomfortable around where the space is. I think it's really interesting what you said there. So I actually saw a quote before we, we jumped on this morning, which discussed around Pep Guardiola saying how he's learned from rugby. And one of the big things he highlighted was the use of like going driving forward, then create space elsewhere. Um, and he likened it, I think, to um, Gundawan, or the, you've got the two A's if you like, who run, I guess, in behind, which then sucks the defenders in to then exploit space. And I guess that, um, you know, for the Lions, with that aggressive defensive line that the South African had, it's similar to that. You're almost, you know, getting that first contact, getting their players around the ball. And then as they look to disperse for the next line, that's when you're going to start to see spaces open up, which they can then be exploited. I completely agree. And I, that's that's probably what I like. I love about sports so much is I love hearing someone like Guardiola. And it's like when Eddie Jones spent time with uh, Guardiola at Bayern Munich. So he spent a couple of days with him there and he said he he literally, he actually said that he walked away from that, that time of Guardiola watching him coach. And he said he was actually embarrassed about how, like how he was as a coach. Isn't like he genuinely felt like he was uh, like, he was so far off being a, a decent coach after watching how Guardiola was able to converse in six different languages and just the intensity of the session and how he was able to communicate with each player and each player was just like holding on to his every word. Um, but yeah, going back to the Lions, I just, I just think that's where that's going to be South Africa's downfall is they are, they, and and they've got obviously they've got the world the Lions have got the best coaches there and they've got amazing people to to sort of to tell them this but I definitely think it's going to be around that how they fold and how they set up their defence that's where the gaps are and it's only a split second it's only there for one second or two seconds but I think that's where if we get someone that can just run at those gaps and just drive forward I think that's where that's where they'll get taken apart. So who would you, so obviously you're looking around kind of rucks and stuff, which scrum half is obviously going to play quite an important part of that as well, potentially eights and stuff. So on a selection point of view, who do you think would best fit that mould to be able to, you know, um, take advantage of those potential openings? 
not biased because it's Scotland, but Ali Price at nine. Definitely Ali Price all the way because he's so quick and he loves sniping around the corners. Um, and then I'd go Marcus Smith at 10. I know he's really young and he's only just been called into the tour side, but he relishes the opportunity to run at defenders who have got their hips turned sideways, who aren't, who are sort of running on an angle where there's a half gap, he'll go for it because he's really quick and he's actually really strong at brushing the first contact off. Um, and I go with, yeah, Ali Price at nine, Marcus Smith at 10, because I think they're the ones that love to attack space and they take risks because they're full of, they're young and they're full of confidence. Um, and I, I, they don't necessarily play rugby in a sort of a conservative way. They like to sort of express themselves. And I think that's, that's how you're going to beat the All Blacks is 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 having boys like that around that are going to be willing to try something. So I'd go for a, an Ali Price 9 and a Marcus Smith 10, I think. Nice. Well, let's see if it comes off or if... Um, yeah. See if... if it depends on who he chooses, see, see how they play. But listen, Ali, really appreciate your time. One one last question for me before we wrap up, which is who is the the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Oh, wow. Um, the best player, best player. I've pro- de- for me, definitely best coach I've ever worked with was Sean Perry. So he was ex- ex-England 9, played for Breve in Bristol. Um, he coached England pathways. So he coached England 18s and he currently works with the Wasps at the moment. So he's their scrum half coach at Wasps and he works with the academy and first team boys. I was lucky enough to work with him at a school, so we worked together for about four years, um, and it was amazing. It was one hell of a learning experience, like just learning from him as an ex-professional and his sort of view on the game, but also just his ability to work with, to build relationships with players, and that was kind of the the cornerstone of his coaching. Really, is how he engaged with the players, and the sessions were always really high tempo and fun. And I probably learned. I coached probably the way I do now from working with him. Um, and he still helps me today and still mentors me today. But definitely he's sort of, he's like, he's next level. He, he should be, like, he should be running the, like, running in an environment for a professional team just to, just with how he is at, as with facilitating stuff. And he's just generally a nice guy. Um, and he's really good at just helping young players develop and get the best out of them by just filling them full of confidence. Um, and I learned loads from him and he challenged me a lot in, and made me feel uncomfortable in really good ways because it pushed me as a coach. And yeah, I definitely wouldn't be the coach I am today without all of his help and, and sort of what he's done for me. Um, and he's a great example of someone who played pro rugby, but he is coached in two or three different school environments and he's really worked on like his coaching craft and like, you know, it speaks volumes now, like he's sort of le- level four coach. He's you know, got the highest coaching qualification and the WASP set up and like he's just in in those sorts of sort of areas he's re- he's really kicked on and 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 yeah he'd probably say he's probably the best coach you've ever worked with and then probably the best I'm trying to think now of well, it's probably yeah I mean I'm lucky enough to get to know people like Lewis Moody as well who who learn a lot about leadership and sort of honesty from and and yeah it's just I've definitely learned a lot about from sort of ex-players who either don't play now or sort of gone into coaching has been probably one of the plus side of it but yeah probably say yeah probably Sean Perry the most perfect that's a really good answer and a great conversation 
Um, hopefully we can catch up again soon. If I don't speak to you before, um, have a safe travel to Australia and I'm, I'm sure everything will go great out there. Cheers. Thank you. Appreciate it for having me on. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.